Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 25, Romans 7, 14 to 25, and I know that you will find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open, reading along there with me. Before we do, let's pray, and then let's read God's word this morning. Father, we need our hearts and minds to be changed by the scriptures. We need your Holy Spirit to come to accompany your revelation and the revelation of your Son. Father, we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to turn that we might be healed. We need you, our God, to till good soil in our hearts that we might not be like the wayside hearer or the stony ground hearer or the thorny ground hearer. Lord Jesus, as the sower of the seed, as the great prophet of the church, we pray that you would speak and that you would make us to hear this morning the voice of the Son of God and come forth and live. We pray that you would sanctify us, Lord. We know how much remaining corruption is within our hearts and minds, and so we pray, Father, that you would make all of the saving benefits of Christ to come rushing into our lives this morning, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14, Paul has been defending the law, not for justification, but if you were here last week, you'll remember that he was defending the law in saying the law is good and holy and just, but I am given over to sin and that the law came in to make sin exceedingly sinful and to stir up sin and to condemn sin. And now Paul shifts gears in verse 14, and notice he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in the mid-19th century, there arose a unique Christian error, and it was called by some the higher life. It was called by others Keswick theology, and in its most simple form, it was called perfectionism. And the idea was that what Paul wrote in Romans 6, that we have died with Christ, that we have died to sin's power, that we have been raised from him, that we are no longer under the dominion of sin. What, what we were then told 
in the mid-19th century by certain Christian groups is that you could attain to some level of perfectionism. That if in this life you consciously understood what you had in Christ, that you could somehow rise above all of your temptations to sin and you could plateau and you could attain to some level of perfectionism. There are two accounts I want to tell you about in reaction to this. The first is Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He was working with a group of his seminarians, and he was teaching, and there was a young man who had come in there who had claimed among his students that he had attained to this state of perfectionism. And some of Spurgeon's students rushed over to him and said, listen, this guy thinks he's perfect. And so Spurgeon took a big pitcher of milk, walked over, and poured it on the guy's head. The guy got sinfully irate, showed before everyone that he was not sinless and perfect, and Spurgeon saying nothing walks away. The second story I want to tell you is around the same time period, a Scottish theologian in Edinburgh, a minister in Edinburgh, one of the greatest, Alexander White of of his day. Um, White was um, famous for being an incredible preacher, and White was grieved over this error that there were Christians embracing this idea that they could attain to this higher life, to this, this idea of some kind of perfect, um, some kind of perfect um, sanctification in this life. And, and White basically said to his congregation, leaning over the pulpit one day, he said, as long as I'm minister in this church, you will never get out of Romans 7. As long as I'm minister in this church, you will never get out of Romans 7. And what White meant, is that what Paul says here in this section brings a sort of experiential balance to what he has said about us in Romans 6. In Romans 6, he clearly said that we died with Jesus, in union with Jesus. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. Sin's dominion was broken. Before that, he had said there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus because the condemnation of the law has been taken away. And as we read these things, I'm being told I'm righteous in Christ and I'm being told that sin no longer has dominion over me. And then in my experience, it's not matching up the way I think it should match up if I'm only reading up through Romans 6. And so Paul now comes to give a necessary step in our understanding of the Christian experience here, beginning in verse 14. And Paul begins to talk about what theologians would call indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. John Owen, uh, the prince of the Puritan theologians, uh, wrote a discourse on the power and remaining corruption of indwelling sin in the believer. And it's so important that we get this. It's so important that we understand what Paul's saying. And Paul has already talked about how when the law came in when he was an unbeliever in verses 7 through 13, that the law killed him, that it brought condemnation, that it brought death, that he wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet, that the law only brought condemnation to Paul before he was a Christian. And notice now in verse 14 that Paul changes, he changes tenses. Notice there in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I presently do the very thing I hate. This is the Apostle Paul. And the great Apostle Paul, who 
writes the greatest statements about pursuing holiness and putting sin to death. And don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you live in these things, you will perish. The same Apostle Paul here in Romans 7 says, I do things that I don't want to do, and I don't do things that I want to do. And presently, I am carnal, and I find another law working in me, and I find a battle within me, and I find in this life this tension between what God has said he's done for me in Christ and carrying this body of sin with me in a fallen world and finding myself doing things that I don't want to do. Now, so difficult is this portion of Scripture that there has probably been more ink spilled in trying to explain what Paul says here. And you get a whole host of explanations. There are people that say Paul is still speaking as an unbeliever. That Paul is explaining that when he was an unbeliever, he was sold under sin and he did things he didn't want to do. And he didn't do things that he wanted to do. And that he delighted in God's law in the mind, but in the flesh he didn't. And that Paul is still speaking as an unbeliever. There are others who say that Paul is speaking as if he is a man in Adam, representing all men in Adam in redemptive history and how the law is just powerless and that Adam failed and fell and this is the experience of all men in Adam. There are others, and this is going to confuse you, there are others who say it is neither the believer nor the unbeliever that Paul is speaking about, but a man who has come under deep conviction of sin under the realization of the spiritual nature of the law of God. And yet, for all the attempts to try to explain what Paul's saying, I think it's very clear. To me, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul is here introducing the subject of indwelling sin, and what he's saying is, though you are redeemed in Christ, though you are a new creature in Christ, though you have been raised up with Christ, though sin's dominion over you is broken so that you are not a slave of sin, nevertheless, sin still remains in you. Though you don't live in sin, and let me say this this morning, anything else I say this morning, get this distinction. If you live in sin, you're not a Christian. But every Christian will readily acknowledge sin still dwells in me. So if you live in sin, if that's the sphere of your existence, that you, you love sin and you love to live in sin and you love to, you love the world, you're not a Christian. If that is your experience, but Paul's going to say, every Christian knows there is still so much sin that dwells in them. Notice Paul is actually going to end this section with that, that incredible heart-wrenching cry. He's, he, it's as if he's tormented over the reality in which he lives. Let me say that this morning. Before we go into any points, I think every true Christian knows what it is to cry out in their heart, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because they hate the fact that they have this war, this irreconcilable war within them. They hate that. That's the experience of a true Christian. They hate their sin. They may like it when they're doing it, but they hate that they've done it. They, they hate that they've dishonored God. And, and Paul brings this to a glorious climax, which we'll see here at the end, where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, let's see three things this morning. First, I want us to consider the spiritual, the spiritual nature of the law of God, because very complicated portion of scripture, Paul is still defending the law of God. He's still saying the law is good and holy and just. So nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. 
everything wrong with us. That's what Paul's saying. Nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. Everything wrong with us. He's still defending the law. Now the question is, the question is, if I've come to Jesus Christ, if I've been delivered from the law's condemnation, what does that mean in my relationship to the law of God now? What does that mean in my Christian life now? Surely, if I couldn't have been justified by the law, I must be able to be sanctified by the law. So if the law couldn't have given me that perfect standing before God, and it couldn't, nothing you did in accord with God's law could ever give you a right standing. Jesus gives you that by faith alone. Surely then, if the law is good and holy and just, it must have the power to make me like Christ in my experience. I think that's, I think that's what Paul is, is sort of asking. And he's going to answer that with an emphatic no. It doesn't. So the law doesn't have the ability to justify you because of your sin. Only faith in Christ will justify you. But the law also doesn't have the power to change you. So you could walk around all day long and think, I will have no other gods before you. I will not commit adultery. I will not bear false witness. I will honor my father and mother. I will not covet Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I will not take the Lord's name in vain. All day long, you could walk around and you could just say, I will, I will, I will obey these commandments and, and the gas tank is empty. There is no power. That will not change you at all. And Paul's actually going to tell us, here's how the law is good in our Christian life. He says, notice verse 14, he says, we know that the law is spiritual. So, the law speaks to the motives of our hearts. It tells us what God wants. It tells us that God wants us to live out lives of spiritual obedience. The law says that. God never gave the law for you to say, as long as I don't do this externally, I'm holy. That's what the Pharisees did with the law. That's what legalists do with the law. That's what everybody outside of Christ tries to do with the law. As long as I don't do these things externally, I'm okay. But God gave that law, and that law always touched the spiritual fabric of our being, and it always called for a spiritual obedience. So the law is spiritual. So Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say if you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder, but if you hate your brother without cause... You're a murderer. That means that the law demanded a spiritual obedience from the heart. And yet, Paul is going to say here, in the Christian life, the law doesn't give the power to fulfill the spiritual demands. So the law is good. I think that's something I want to emphasize this morning. Even as we have said there is no condemnation for the believer in Christ that you are, you are not under the law as a rule of condemnation. That you will, If you're in Christ Jesus, you will not be judged by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day. You have already been judged in Jesus Christ. So there's no condemnation for those in Christ. Paul will say that in Romans 8.1. That's Romans 1 through 5, Romans 8.1, no condemnation. And even though that's true, and even though Paul in this section is going to say the law doesn't have any power to change you in itself, he's still going to say the law is good and right and holy. And Paul is essentially going to say in this chapter exactly what David said in the Psalms, how I love your law, how I delight in your law. You know, I said this to you recently, and I'll say it again 
It took me halfway through seminary to get this because I had mistakenly looked at God's law as if it was a problem when I was the problem. My sin was the problem. And so when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he's saying, I want you to have a full day of rest. Think about all the anxiety in life, all the worries, all the anxieties, all the concerns. I mean, six days of worry, sinful worry, that's bad. And God says, take one day and know that my son has done everything for you and rest and worship and feed on my word. And that's good. That's good and it's right and it's spiritual and, it, and, it's, and it's something we should delight in. And Paul is actually going to say, notice, notice what Paul is going to say throughout this chapter. He is actually going to say in, in several places that he delighted in the law. He delighted in the mind, in the law of God. Notice, notice what he says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. So Paul understood that the law was spiritual, and now as a believer, we should want to obey God. So that's an essential component to everything Paul says in this. If you're a Christian, you, we are all on a trajectory of wanting to obey God. That's the trajectory every Christian is on, no matter how weak, how strong, how backslidden, how quickly they're going in grace. Every Christian's on that trajectory. And Paul is going to say, notice that he is going to say um, that, verse 19, I do not do the good I want. So Paul wanted to do what was pleasing to God. And notice, he says in verse 20, now if I... Do what I do not want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find a law that when I want to do right, that is when I want to obey God and his commandments, evil lies close at hand. Notice this. Here it is, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God. This is why I think this is Paul post-conversion. One big reason. Unbelievers do not delight in the law of God. Even Paul, when he was self-righteously trying to keep the law, didn't delight in the law. Now Paul understands that though he wasn't justified by the law, I could say that like 50 more times just so we get that. You do not get a right standing with God based on anything you do in regard to the law. Paul came to an understanding that a Christian delights in God's law. Notice what he says. For I delight of the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind. So Paul understands that in his mind, in, in, his, in the renewed man, in the new nature, that Paul sees that the law of God is good and spiritual and right, and that what God means for his people is good. No, um, Gerhardus Voss makes an interesting point I had never thought of. If you tend to think of the law of God as restricting you from having a good time. He says, you know, Jesus said um, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. What Jesus is saying is it was made for our good. So God's intention was good for his people. And so Paul understands that the law of God is good and that it's right and that it's spiritual. Secondly, Paul brings forth the Christian's battle with indwelling sin, and this permeates this passage. You see that 
back and forth. It's almost poetic. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. So Paul is driving home that inside every believer, there is what the Puritans called an irreconcilable war every day of our life, sometimes more noticeable than others, sometimes painfully more noticeable than others. Sometimes it, the corruptions of the flesh can so seem to take over that you ask, how could I be a Christian with these things being manifested? I think Paul would have you understand. I don't, I don't think Paul is saying every day he was out saying, I want to obey the Lord today and I'm going to live by faith in Christ and life in the spirit and that every day he was going out and just doing all kinds of wicked things. That's not what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying that it is a common experience in believers to have this irreconcilable war going on in which we don't do the things we want to do and we do things that we don't want to do and, and we hate those things. So even when Paul is acknowledging this is a reality in believers, and let me say this this morning, I take unbelievable comfort from the fact that the Apostle Paul is writing this 25 years after he's converted. So 25 years after he was converted, he is saying, I presently have this going on within me because I have that going on within me. You know, it's kind of funny whenever... I've read commentators, there's so many, who try to explain this passage, and they they do away with this, this can't be a believer. And here's what they say. They say, look at verse 14. They say, this can't be a believer because here's what Paul says here. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And they say, well, well, how could Paul say I'm sold under sin when in chapter six, he said, I'm no longer under the dominion of sin? Well, Notice back in chapter 6, notice that Paul says at the end of that section, not to present our members as slaves to impurity. And so Paul says in chapter 6, it's possible for you to be in Jesus and to present yourself and to put yourself back under some semblance of the enslaving power of sin. It's very possible. How do I know it's possible? Because almost every saint in the Bible did that very thing. Moses killed a man. David killed a man. Every saint in the Bible at different times fell and fell horribly. David fell so bad after he was converted that he murdered one of his best friends and mighty men, took his wife, committed adultery, had a premeditated murder with him, and then didn't repent for at least nine months. So we know that's possible. The apostle Peter denies Jesus three times after he's converted. Then he denies the gospel 14 years later in Galatia. The apostle John falls down to worship an angel twice idolatrously in the book of Revelation. So the greatest, godliest men and women in the scriptures all at times knew what it was to fall and to put themselves for a time under the power of sin. And so notice that Paul is, though he said, you're not under it as a rule, as, 
um, as a constant, you are not under it. If you're in Christ, you are free from the dominion of sin. You're a new creature. You have a new nature. Nevertheless, Paul says in verse 14, I am carnal, sold under sin. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, I have sold myself under sin. So Paul is here talking about what it means to be living in a sinful world with sin still in us, with a body and a soul that is still tainted by sin with an old nature. Let me say this this morning, because I don't know how to say this in a way that's going to be helpful, but the only thing I can say is that the Christian is basically schizophrenic. Only way I can say that is that you have two natures. You don't, have, you don't have one nature. If you're a believer, you have a new nature. You have a regenerate nature in you. God's given you a new heart. But you still have an old nature that you carry around with you. It's been crucified with Christ, but you can put yourself back in that nature and you can live in that nature. So, so the Christian has this experience that seems almost schizophrenic. Paul almost sounds schizophrenic, doesn't he? I do things I don't want to do. I don't know why I do things. I, I do when I don't want to do them, and I find these, this principle at work in me, warring against my flesh and bringing me into captivity. And notice what Paul says here. He actually, I think it's interesting, when he is explaining this, this irreconcilable war, he actually, notice, he, he does something very interesting in verse 21. He said, I find it to be a law within me. So he's been talking about the law of God. Now he uses this kind of illustration. He says, I find this, this other law in me, a principle, and it's this, this warfare going on within me constantly. And notice verse 23. I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So what does this mean for you? I don't have to know any of you to know that if you're a believer, you experience this on a daily basis. You get up, if you get up and pray and read the word, and I'm going to serve the Lord today, I'm going to have a good day, and you are barely outside the door before you are sinning in your mind, on the telephone, at work, in the car. I mean, you have not gone an hour before you're like, I wanted to serve the Lord today. I set out to serve the Lord today. I was going to have a good day. I was going to seek the Lord. I prayed against temptation. I read the scriptures. I meditated on that. And you barely step out the door. And it's, I mean, you'll leave here today and probably somebody will get in a fight on the way home. That is a Christian tradition. <laughs> My best friend said that is a Christian tradition. My wife is not laughing. Um, it is a Christian tradition. It may be Baptist. It may be Presbyterian. But you will not be to your car. Maybe, hopefully this doesn't happen. But it happens all the time. And we leave worship. And that, that law, that war is happening within us. So that's a reality. Anybody who says to me, this is not indwelling sin. This is not an experience of a believer. I want to take them and say, do you not know your own heart? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Now, I don't think, again, that Paul is every day walking around every second saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But I think as a normal experience in the Christian's life, this is the experience. And, and so what I want us to see is that while it gives us 
comfort to know that we're not in this alone and that every true believer experiences this. And that actually, I would argue that when you want to serve the Lord most faithfully, you oftentimes see an uprising of the flesh within you more fully. And I can't explain that. But when you want to serve the Lord more faithfully, get ready for spiritual warfare and an uprising of the flesh, because that's often how that happens. It's also interesting to me that Job, Job suffers for nothing he did personally wrong in the book of Job, doesn't know why he suffers. He vindicates himself through the whole book. I've been upright. I've been righteous. On one level, he had been. He had not committed any grave sin by which that was chastisement for him. Um, But at the end of the book, when God comes to rebuke Job, Job says, behold, I am vile. When Peter sees who Jesus is, when he realizes that Jesus is the the all-powerful son of God, when he was out all night fishing and they had caught nothing and Jesus said, throw it over, and they pulled it in early on in the Gospels, and Peter falls down and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Isaiah the prophet, greatest prophet in the Old Testament, greatest of the major prophets in the Old Testament, when he sees a vision of Jesus high and lifted up in all of his holiness and majesty, he says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That's that's the response. While we take comfort that we're not alone, we hate that this is the reality of the life that we live, and we long to be set free from that. And so even Romans 7, while it gives us hope that that in this life, we're all in this state of imperfection. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism actually tackles this issue. They say, um, basically, what about the godliest person in this life? Can they keep the commandments of God perfectly redeemed? And, and the writer of the Heidelberg, writers of the Heidelberg Catechism say, um, in this life... The godliest do make but the smallest advances in the obedience that God requires. They make but the smallest advances. And that keeps you humble. That keeps you humble. That makes you say, I used to love actually hearing this as a young Christian. I need to hear it more today. Is, um, and there's lots of theologians that have said this. Charles Spurgeon actually said when, um, when someone comes to criticize you, or attack you. Take heart. You are far worse than they know you are. You are far worse. And you are far worse than you know you are. And I am far worse than I know I am. And Paul is saying, the reality of the Christian life is this reality. And and it should leave us with a burden because the Christian is on a trajectory to Jesus Christ and to glory and to sinlessness. The goal is going to be sinlessness in heaven. The Apostle John says that, that when we see him, we will be like him. But here, Paul says, there is a war raging within us. The law of my mind, I delight in the word of God, the law of God, in my flesh. I war against that, and that it is irreconcilable. Notice, I would also argue just here briefly about Paul's teaching. Notice in Romans 8, the next chapter is going to be victory. I actually, I love this um, I love this quote by J.I. Packer. Let me read this to us. J.I. Packer likens Romans 7. He says, The Christian life is like a personal house with different aspects. The Christian life is like a personal house 
with different aspects. Romans 7 depicts the cold, shadowed side which faces away from the sun. I love this. You think of your house, the sun's beating down in the front. The Christian life is like that house. It has different rooms and aspects and dimensions. Romans 7 is like the cold, shadowed side facing away from the sun. It's talking about the burdensome reality of indwelling sin. And then Packer said Romans 8 shows us the warm side where the sunshine is seen and felt. We only get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 in the sense that after letting the law speak to us about ourselves, we listen afresh to the gospel. But both aspects of experience, the pain of imperfection and the joy of assurance, hope, and spiritual progress should be ours constantly, consciously, and conjointly. So at every moment of your life, Romans 7 is true and Romans 8 is true. Romans 8, we're going to come and and Paul's going to say God's given us his spirit. He's done in the gospel for you everything that you need. That's the confidence we have. There's no condemnation in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. But then notice what Paul does. It's like he comes right back to Romans 7. Notice in Romans 8, 22. It says, if Paul returns back to Romans 7, and here's what he says, We know that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that even as we have the Spirit and we rejoice in what we have in Christ and we realize that we're living life in newness and in 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 unbroken expectation of glory, at the same moment we groan painfully, inwardly, waiting for the full redemption when when the bodies of corruption are done away and we are transformed into the glorious image of Jesus. So that's why I think Romans 7 says what it says. I would point you, John Piper has written 10 points on why he thinks Romans 7, 14 to 25, are about the believer. I would encourage you to look that up. Um, Finally, the Christian certain hope of victory. Notice that Paul doesn't leave us with just this, there's a war going on, there's a battle going on, uh, life is hard, the Christian life is hard, spiritual warfare is hard, I hate doing things I don't want to do, I wish I did things that I want to do, but notice what Paul says, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul knows that what Jesus Christ did at the cross had secured the ultimate victory. Not for sinless perfection now, but for sinless perfection then. So that what your future holds for you if you're a Christian, and this is where we've got to get to, Paul asks the question, who's going to deliver me from this tension and this experience? He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not now, when he comes, when we go to be with him, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he brings it right back to Jesus. And he says, what Jesus does at the cross is secures a victory for you. Let me say this this morning. We have to get there because if all you do is camp out in the previous verses, you will either downplay sin and start to say, well, got indwelling sin. It's not that bad. Give up the fight. Give in to the sin. Justify sin. So if we, if we don't get to crying out with Paul, wretched man that I am, 
And thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ. We are either going to give in to sin or we are going to live in condemnation constantly because we're going to see pollution in us and corruption in us. Those are the two ditches. Give in or live in condemnation and defeat, not knowing that you have victory in Jesus and that one day we will see him and be like him. And as the hymn writer said, we will be saved to sin no more. We'll be saved to sin no more. I want to read this last quote as we close. Sinclair Ferguson says, The law exposes my sinfulness, but as my sin is exposed, I'm not left to despair. I'm not left to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I find my all-sufficiency in Jesus Christ. That's the way to live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life is to discover increasingly that you are this wretched man and woman Because you see, it is this wretched man or woman alone who discovers how glorious Jesus is. Those who love much, says Jesus, are those who are forgiven much. And so the law of God exposes our sinfulness in the recesses of our lives. It breaks through all the facade and comes to the very heart of our being, not as it were to destroy us, but because we are safe in Jesus Christ. So what Ferguson's saying is, as you realize that you are in this battle inwardly and that that is a common experience of all believers, what you need to realize is that there's victory in Jesus Christ and that you are safe in him and that one day you will be glorified in him because of what he's done on the cross. You know, one question I've had constantly asked, and it's interesting to me, unbelievers often raise that, well, if Jesus died to defeat all evil 2,000 years ago, If he died 2,000 years ago to defeat evil, why doesn't the world look better? And you could easily say to them, there is a war going on in my soul that you have no idea what it's like because you're you're not fighting this battle. There is a irreconcilable war in my soul, but I have every expectation that what the Lord Jesus did on the cross will come to full fruition in my life in consummate glory. And that what he has done even now comforts us as we go through those growing pains in sanctification. Let me say this this morning. If this is just lost on you, if you are thinking, I don't get that, I don't, I've never felt that, I would urge you to put yourself under the searching light of God's law, to let God's law search you, to let it do to you what Paul said it had to do to him in in. Romans 7, 7 through 14, to let it bring all of its condemning voice and then flee to Jesus, flee to the Savior who hushes the law's loud thunder. And if you're a Christian and you are struggling this morning and you are wondering, why can't I get over this sin? Why can't, why do I seem to fall back into this? Why do I continue to struggle with this? I would say to you this morning, keep fighting. I think the Apostle Paul would say to you this morning, keep fighting. Paul didn't ever just give in. He did things he didn't want to do, sinfully. He didn't do things that he wanted to do, sinfully. But he never just gave in. Keep fighting and know that God gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus and that there is a day of peace and rest. And let me say this as a a final word to you, if you're a believer. Our short lives of wrestling with sin are nothing 
compared to the peace and joy that you're going to have in sinless perfection in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. What you feel, the weight you feel, Paul says that our afflictions are but a light weight compared to the eternal weight of glory that you're going to have with Christ. So try to measure the brevity of our life and the brevity of this battle because it will come to an end and you will have everlasting peace. No more tears, no more sighs, no more strife, no more sorrow. That's what the Christian has because God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these things and that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would change us through the scriptures. We pray that you would give us a right assessment of ourselves and the battle that is raging within. We pray that you would also give us that confident hope and that longing expectation that you have given us the victory in the Lord Jesus and that one day, Lord Jesus, you will come and you will conform us completely to your image. We pray that you would hasten that day. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would come quickly and that you would deliver us from these bodies of death. We pray these things in your name. Amen.